Episode four. Is it four? Yeah. Episode four of the Gorilla Social Work Podcast. Today we're going to talk about honesty, how to assist clients in being honest in their treatment, the importance of being honest in their treatment so that they can get the most out of it, make their treatment effective. So I guess not really a ton to explain on this one. Kind of speaks for itself. Um, as always, Gorilla Social Work Podcast is brought to you by Alpha Counseling and Treatment, which provides individual, group, and family therapy services in Utah. If you have questions or want to have want to get more information, check out utahsbesttherapy.com. Get more about man, I can't talk today. More about that. So yeah, we're going to get into a discussion here on honesty. Are we live? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I love you just start breathing. Dude, speaking of live, do you know they're coming in concert? Are they? Yeah. Dude, I'd go see them again. I would. Man, Were you... Did you come with us to that concert? No, it was me. Oh, it was he's... me, you, Aaron, and Alan. No. Wait. Was Smith there? No. Smithers? Or was it both? Smithers there? was there. Yeah. I remember because we made fun of Ames. Yeah. <laughs> Dude, I want to see live. Dude, that Dude, guy, they were, they were I'm telling you, like... Uh, that when that guy was singing, bro, like he is so good at singing. Like, I, well, it was really it was it was better than listening to the CD. Like I'm, and then and then it was crazy. Like That's a hell of a statement. I'm not was, kidding. I am good. not kidding, bro. And and he, and he's singing, and then you know he's got these moves and shit, you know. And then I remember, Oops. well, yeah, yeah really dude, was. like you, you <laughs> just, yeah, I'm did. not kidding you, <laughs> yeah, like, like black leather. I mean, like you were, I'm, okay. This moves. is the thing, though. This is the thing, and that's that's what it is about that guy. If you're watching that dude, do you know what his name is? What's his name? It's something weird. Ed something. I want to say okay. Ed Sullivan. <laughs> it's Ed Sullivan again. Yeah, but no, if you're watching him on the on the stage, you were like totally captivated by that dude yeah. and then he's singing and then dude is the craziest thing like it started so it's he like starts playing lightning crashes yeah. and it starts raining and there's lightning like in the, and, and they literally just, when they started that song yeah that's no joke i start i definitely was like you're suggesting he controlled the weather no, no i'm saying that that it was a cool experience that i i started questioning whether or not i was attracted to him because <laughs> <it was laughs> i didn't question yeah i was like all. so am i gay or <laughs> i don't know how you'd say his last name what is it k-o-w-a-l-c-z-y-k i don't know i give up i don't yeah that's weird but he's he's got a he's got a nice no, that was amazing it yeah, was, it, was cool. a, it was like kind of cloudy the whole day and then Collective Soul plays, and it was pretty cool. And then live comes on. It's like, clear. so we're up in Wyoming, and like clear off in the distance, you can just see these like clouds rolling in during their set. And like seriously, the second they started playing Lightning Crashes, all this lightning just started going. In. I was like, like, what? The? Yeah, it really was, but it was yeah. awesome. God, I was just like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna create a cool atmosphere here. Yeah, yeah. no, he, I was, I was like beyond impressed with uh, his voice. It he, sounds, it sounds like a lie, but it's the honest truth. And today's <laughs> podcast is about honesty. <laughs> nice segue. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So. Uh, so yeah, honesty is actually a really important topic, obviously, in therapy. Um, one thing I, I think that we try to communicate to clients is that every moment that you spend with a therapist in which you're lying is a complete waste of your time. And if anything about these clients, you know, they think that it, well, if I'm coming to therapy, particularly if I'm paying for it, um, it better be worth my time, better be worth my while. And so I just try to convince clients from the jump, well... <laughs> then let's just be honest with one another, you know, um, by all, you know, after all you are protected to some degree by confidentiality and it's a good, it's a good opportunity to be honest. So, um, when we talk about this topic, the purpose of it is, is basically to help clients understand that being truthful is an effective way. Uh, and we say to nullify sexually abusive behaviors. We'll get into that a little bit more. Um, but then we also talk about the the difficulties that are inherent to being truthful in this type of a setting. 
um, which is which is very real. And then we help them understand the relationship between having a healthy lifestyle and truthfulness. And a couple of the risk factors that we try to target are um, whether or not a client's cooperating with treatment, um, their responsibility to their sexual offense, and then, of course, um, sexual behaviors in general because if they're not being open and honest about their sexual behaviors, then we're not really going to get very far in treatment. Yeah, we we certainly don't hold many punches when it comes to the stuff we ask these poor saps that come and talk to us. You know, I mean, if you're a, if you're a client of ours at any given session, we might ask you how often you're masturbating or what you're thinking of. It's like kind of wild stuff. This isn't stuff that really comes up in conversation a lot of times and. I don't know. I could speak for myself. If I had some weirdo like Mace or Justin asking me those types of questions, I'd clam up pretty quick too and for sure lie, you know? So I, I'd have to have a, I don't know, as, as a client, I could see, you know, coming into treatment as being pretty intimidating. I have to, so like Mace said, cooperation with treatment, sex offense responsibility, and sexual behaviors are the risk factors. Well, if I have a sex offense and I'm coming into treatment, you know, last week, we or last time we talked about motivation for treatment, but if I'm coming into treatment and I'm sitting down with some stranger and I have to admit and talk about probably the most shameful aspect of my life <clears throat> that I'm still reeling from. And then I have, and furthermore, then there, he's asking me you know, how often I masturbate, what I'm thinking about, if, if I've ever caused myself pain masturbating. We, we go into these weird things. It's uh, it's it's gonna be it's gonna be a challenge to be honest. And as therapists, we have quite the task at hand to to be able to, you know, give these guys a type of atmosphere to where they can talk about these things, knowing that it's you know, and being documented and that we're actively tracking what they're saying. I don't know, pretty daunting stuff. So yeah, that's I guess that I guess I'm just acknowledging that it's probably a, a rough road for clients and a hell of a challenge for us to get them on board with it. But I don't know. I think the three of us probably got some techniques that we can go over today. Well, the one thing in there is, is I like that. I mean, so right out of the gate on this topic, we try to tell clients that not being truthful is part of the sexual behavior problem. So now compare that to something, you know, okay, just another field of forensic therapy that might be looked at as shameful, right? So like drug use, okay? So if you live in in anywhere where there's any type of opiate problem, right? So uh, Ogden, Utah particularly has an opiate problem. Well, I can't go very far on the freeway or on the streets without seeing a billboard, right, that talks about the opidemic is what they're calling it. And they've they've spent, and it's a good thing. I'm not I'm not criticizing it, but I mean, think about what they're doing. They're campaigning to get people to reach out and ask for help. So so the, these ads are normalizing and and trying to appeal to people who are actively using to then seek help, so that we don't have the overdose rate that we're currently experiencing in in the state of Utah. I hadn't right? really thought about that. So like basically, you got a, a heroin addict or whatever it is. And due to the shame or the stigma associated with being an addict, they're so reticent to ask for help that they might end up expiring before they even do. So the billboard is, yeah, yeah, I never right. thought about that. Spend so they, to- so right, so they come in and now they're more where they're way more willing to ask for help because, well, man, after all, there's a big ad campaign, right? Well, I mean, when was the last time you saw a billboard that said pedophilia? Come talk to me. You're like, you know what I mean? Like, no. So, exactly. Never. No, no, exactly. Now, now imagine that. So again, you say I, I was talking to I was talking to uh, my one of my clients yesterday. And a weird that's billboard. That's all it says, though. Yeah. It's not like saying for help. Just, <laughs> come talk to me. Just pedophilia question mark. Come talk to me. To me. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Who are you? There's not even a number there. <laughs> Uh, no, I was talking to a client just yesterday, and 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 uh, she was and she was really kind of terrified, you know. And she she had asked him, "I am I have you diagnosed me with pedophilia?" I'm like, "Nah, not even close. Like you're not even in the ballpark." Imagine though, like if somebody was, and I was I was one. I asked her, I was like, "Well, why are you so afraid of that? Like, what what's the 
you know, what, what's the fear of being, having been diagnosed with that, you know? And she had said, well, because then people think I'm going to be out there, you know, picking up kids. And I think that's a, that's a problem. So if, if, I mean, imagine if you just, if one day, you know, there, uh, I don't know, you just woke up and all of a sudden you were really attracted to children, right? Just imagine that. I mean, how tough that would be. Even if you, like all the same, all the same things you guys know about sex offender therapy right now, and you just woke up one day and were attracted to children. So before you Dude. finish, I just say real quick, maybe throw out too, like the legit definition of pedophile though, because I think there's also a lot of confusion on what that actually is. Well, there's a, so, so I don't have it off. I can't rattle up, rattle it off on the top of my head, but there's a DSM uh, five criteria for this. Yeah, I know I'd wreck it trying. Yeah, to. yeah, yeah. Jeff will kind of pull that up, um, but but the one thing I I try to say on this is is it's it's hard to reach that bar. It's a pretty high bar to be diagnosable with this. So there's a whole class of what we call paraphilias, um, and these would be called you know exhibitionism, voyeurism, um, and, and and these are all the sexual disorders, the sexual dysfunctions and whatnot. And pedophilia falls into that. It's one of the categories therein. And so to diagnose a client with that. Is is actually pretty difficult. It's hard to reach that threshold. Jeff has the actual criteria. This is right from the most reputable site, Wikipedia. So, <laughs> that's uh, pretty accurate. Yeah, that's good enough. Pedophilia is a psychiatric disorder in which an adult or older adolescent experiences a primary or exclusive sexual attraction to prepubescent children. It goes on to say, although girls typically begin the process of puberty at age ten or eleven, and boys at age eleven or twelve, criteria for pedophilia extend the cutoff point to 13. A person who is diagnosed with pedophilia must be at least 16 years old and at least five years older than the prepubescent child for the attraction to be diagnosed as pedophilia. Hmm. So there's well, no, and don't they have to and it's got to be like for six months at a time. Right, yeah, there's like a time span on it. Right. Yeah, well, there's a lot of criteria to meet there. My point is this, if again, all things being equal as if they I are right up, now. If I woke up attracted to 11-year-olds? Yeah, tell me how terrifying that would oh be for you. Oh my god, dude, that Well, right. Uh, I got I got mic problems. Oh, hey. So yeah. So I mean, just think about how terrifying that would be. I mean, it's not so, so you can't explain it. You didn't want it. You don't want it, and it's there, right? Okay. Well, are are there sources readily available for you to reach out and ask for help? It, without knowing what I know as a therapist, no. Well, right. Could yeah. you could you roll over? You know, if if, if, <laughs> if imagine so for a community member, if you just woke up and I and again, I know this is kind of a hard concept. I'm asking you to really. Just do a thought experiment here, and imagine one day you wake up and you're attracted to children, right? I mean, this isn't something you would talk to your spouse about. And you're like, "Honey, man, Jimmy's looking real good this week." I mean, you're like you're not, <laughs> you no know, way. you don't, you don't, you don't say those things because you're being honest that that at that point is a huge. First of all, it's an embarrassment, but it's also a threat to you as a person because if I if I admit these things about myself. There can be some real long-term damage to me based on the relationships in my life. Lots if, of social consequences. Well, they would come with all kinds of shame and guilt and death. Yeah. People if I go looking down to at a, you a different uh, way. If I go no down to what. just a regular run-of-the-mill therapist who doesn't specialize in this stuff, and they ask me, though, you know, the the age-old, well, tell me what brings you to my office today. And you're like, well, I just am really attracted to children. You know, like, uh, do you think that therapist is going to know how to field that or what to do or that they're that they're going to be able to dispatch away from their personal thoughts and feelings about a person who has those, you know, those 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 urges and those compulsions. They might go into de- into detective mode, which is, you know what I mean, like, well, have you abused anybody? I mean, again, if you're if you're trying to seek help for these types of things and maybe you've never even done anything wrong, you just have these attractions. Right. Uh, you're getting grilled by a therapist. Right. I so I think I think the thing first and foremost for a client is if if these, if you have some of these thoughts and feelings, okay, and it's not just, it's not limited to pedophilia. I mean, the, in the field of social, in the field of sex offense treatment, the, the, you know, what makes these guys tick is far beyond deviant fantasies. But if I do have deviant fantasies, I have to create an environment in which that guy can talk about those things. Because if he's not, um, it's likely that I'm going to be returning back to those behaviors because I can't really get to the root of the issue to deal with the whole thing. So, so what I mean, does that mean? What is creating an environment that somebody could talk about deviant sexual fantasies? What would that look like? I, mean, I, I think I know for me, but I want to hear from you guys. 
Well, so so I think first and foremost is is exactly I I um to some degree I I I don't want to say I normalize it. What I do want to say is I want to say that you shouldn't um that just because you have these thoughts and feelings don't necessarily mean that you're going to act on these, okay? Um and so that goes a long way with clients because I just want to acknowledge that having this doesn't mean you're going to act on it and talking about it is going to help you in the long run to resolve this. So if I can frame it and tell a client, look, it's so again, if whatever it comes boils down to, most clients are self-interested and they should be. There's nothing wrong with that. If I can say, look, it's in your best interest to talk about this because unless we talk about this, you're not going to be able to work on what are some indicators to control this. The other thing that I'm going to try to tell a client too is it's unlikely that those urges and those fantasies and those, you know, those those wants and desires are ever really going to go away completely. We might be able to reduce them in frequency um, and duration and intensity, um, but ultimately go away? Probably not. So we have to, first of all, let's start to develop a way to control those. We don't do arousal reconditioning, right? Well, what's the reason you tell them that, though, real quick? Why, why do you, what's the reason you tell them that it's, it's probably not going to go away? Well, because I don't want a client to ever feel like they're cured, you know, quote unquote cured. Um, but then also to prepare them that down the road, if if they do notice that that happens, they don't experience what we call the abstinence of a violation effect. So it's kind of a phenomenon where clients feel, okay, I can't ever have another deviant thought or fantasy again in my life. And if I do, I'm screwed because then that's the abstinence violation effect. So I, I've now broken my abstinence. And because of that, it's equivalent to relapsing and reoffending. So I might as well go with a full nine and start looking at child porn and so on and so forth, right? So I have to give them some variability to mess up a little bit and make some mistakes within reason. You know, I'm not saying create a new victim. I'm saying that they're, they're you know, they can mess up every now and then and allow them to come and talk to me about it without, you know, burying them in the process, you know, and turning this into the end of the world type situation. So that's one thing that you kind of try to do. Well, it's a number of things you try to do there. That's kind of my approach. Well, it's kind of like a, it's kind of like in the last episode, we were talking about motivation, like saying maybe somebody in the moment really is not that motivated to tell the truth. So it's kind of like the whole thing. I'm not really motivated to go to the gym, but if I make myself go and then I get some positive benefits. So let's say I get a guy that comes in and admits to something, even if it's small, and he's used to hearing, oh, you're in trouble. Oh, we got to write a report here. Oh, I'm going to handcuff you. If he's used to hearing that and he's used to having negative consequences, and all of a sudden he gets like a, oh, cool. Dude, thanks for telling me. Thanks for being honest. And all of a sudden he can, he can leave and think like, oh, I just told the truth. And like, it went well. Like, I feel better. What's going on here? And that's that, the kind of where his motivation. Yeah, his motivation might be like, well, shoot, what else can I tell him? What else can I tell him? Because I'd say that's something I commonly see with clients, whether it's in group or individuals. Understandably, they kind of test a little bit. Like these guys are kind of making it sound like I can be open here, but I don't know if I can. So I'm going to throw like a little bit out and kind of see how they take it. Uh, it actually went well. So what else can I tell these guys? What else can I get out there? And I think it starts to build the fact that I actually can tell the truth, depending on where I'm at. It probably does throw them off when they say something that probably sounds pretty screwed up to like, you know, most people or whatever, you know, like I, you know, they might say they, you know, masturbated to a fantasy of their victim, which is clearly something that we don't want to happen. But then, you know, Justin, if you're like, hey, you know what, appreciate you telling me that, Mm -hmm. that all of a sudden that the guy sees a window, a glimmer of hope, like, hey, maybe I can actually talk about I'm not going to be judged either. Like, so there's definitely a place, especially in treatment that, for the most part, we should try to make that. It should be judgment-free. Like, even if I'm internally thinking something about a response, like, I'm not going to show them that. You know, they don't deserve to hear that or see that in treatment. So, Well, it's kind of counterintuitive, though, if I'm a client. So you, I mean, so if you think about um, your personal problems on their face, who's the last person in the world you want to talk to your personal problems about? A stranger, yeah, right? Like some, yeah. some dude with a, a, with com- a big red beard. A complete a, stranger. Uh, but... But then also, so the other thing to point out to a client is, all right then, well, why are you not talking to your loved ones about this? The primary relationships that you had in your life, how could, I mean, it's not like, you know, so so clients sometimes will say, well, I don't know what happened, it just happened. And I caution them on that. Oh, yeah. Because, because basically I try to, now again, that's kind of a defense mechanism that they use. 
they say, you know, I blacked out and this happened or whatever, or I did, you know, and it's, it just kind of happened, and they don't have a whole lot of explanation or rationale what was going on in their life. There wasn't a plan. There was no plan. Right. Like it's a good thing. Or <clears throat> and I'm not saying they had to go into an extensive, like, you know, uh, Professor Chaos type planning, you know, or whatever. Like I'm, I'm saying that I'm saying that that the, yes, there was some build up to this. This was this just didn't happen in a, you know in a vacuum. It, there was some build up to it, and acknowledging that is really important um, because if you were truly impulsive and things just happened, then the type of treatment that we do is not going to be effective. Cognitive behavioral therapy relies on you being able to slow that process down to be able to pinpoint. How your how the situation evoked a thought, how those thoughts impacted your emotions, how those emotions led to actions, and then there we have it, right? So it relies on that. And so we say, I caution them and say, eh, you may not want to pull that line because man, the only thing we can help you there is a state hospital, you know? And so then they usually take it back. But I, I ask, okay, so... So you had to have, at one point or another, recognized that this was a problem, that you could have been going down a dark path. How come you didn't talk to your loved ones about it? And they usually say, well, because I, you know... Of the risk that is inherent in that. Yeah, Yeah. if there's a lot of bridges to be burned there, you know, I worry, and that's a good thing. I try to tell even people, because parents and and loved ones, they all get upset about these things. How come you didn't tell me? Well, they didn't tell you because they love you. They want they want to maintain the relationship with you. It's not it's not an insult that they didn't tell you. It's an insult because. Or it's, I mean, it's a good thing because they don't want to lose that relationship. And not to mention that... That's a good reframe. Well, yeah, and, and not to mention that some of our closest relationships, and I even see clients, it's it's just like, I love it when they're, you know, when a client goes behind somebody's back or something like that, you know, and in one way or another tells, you know, and like, dude, don't do that again. Just come and talk to me. I'm like, all right. But you you have to... You have to then, again, create a template for me wanting to come and talk to you. If I come and talk to you and, and say, hey, here's the problem, man, horizontally, like right to you, you know, and you're all, what, you got a fucking problem? You want to come about? You know, like, okay, so so thank you for showing me that I can't come and talk to you about this, yeah. okay? So don't don't tell me to come and talk to you when I can't do this, and that happens with our families too. So when it's a complete stranger, it's actually kind of nice. I get to dump all of my mm. shit on you. And I get to walk yeah. away, and no fear of that relationship being take, like dissolved or anything. It's that relationship I know is going to end in the future, so I can tell you whatever I want. And guess what? You have to, by law, keep that secret. I mean, there's no more benefit than that coming into a coming into a treatment center. Mm-hmm. That's great. <laughs> uh, so th- this is something I've done too. I don't know. I don't even know what you guys think about it, but. Kind of to help them feel comfortable. You take off your shirt and yeah, try, take, to, <laughs> try to make out with them. I take off, yes, I take off my shirt, that's going kinda, for the kiss. That's a creepy tactic. It works. Well, I'm, I'm an adult, and it's consensual. I'm trying to model appropriate behavior. Now, I, <laughs> you, you were talking about how, like Mace, I'm looking at Mace. Mace was talking about how he'll have a client that has, you know, a deviant sexual fantasy and doesn't feel like he can talk about it. And he wants it to go away completely. He wants to never have it again. And Mace was talking about how, you know, the abstinence violation effect says that, you know, well, if you do, well, what if you do have it again? You have to be prepared to deal with it. And more than likely you will. One thing I liken it to, and this is completely me talking out of my ass. I don't have any research to back this. I kind of equate it to sexual orientation. I'm not saying pedophilia is like a sexual orientation the way that, you know, homosexual, heterosexual, bisexual, or whatever we're talking is. But I I kind of feel like the clients get something out of having it related to that just because, you know, I'm I have a wife, I'm heterosexual, and it's it's really hard for me to imagine not being attracted to women and to be attracted to well any anything else really. And I think sometimes, especially if, I mean, exclusive pedophiles are pretty rare. But for those, you know, poor people that are afflicted by whatever, whatever causes this thing, you know, that they really, it really doesn't seem like they have much control over it. Like they can just switch it off and all of the sudden become attracted to adults. Because guess what? They'd probably do it at the drop of a hat if they had control over it. Imagine how hard life would be again, like if you were just attracted to kids, you know, if you could choose to be attracted to adults, I, I, I'll bet you every one of my clients would say, if, if it was my choice, yeah, I'd drop it. Mm-hmm. 
And so again, what I'm saying, it's, you know, consider it like orientation. You, you, you know, you're, you know, maybe you can decrease the frequency or the intensity of these urges when they come up, but it's probably always going to be a piece of you to a degree. And just being okay with that while focusing on what like maybe a healthy sexual behavior would be, it's going to keep you a lot more sane. And I, I think when I express that to them, they feel, they feel like they're not as broken. Well, there's hope there too. And you explain there's it that hope. way. You frame it that way. There's hope. Yeah. I, I just have always felt weird saying it because I don't have any research to back what I'm saying as far as like it being a sexual orientation. That's super controversial. You know, there's like, there's, there's a lot of people that may or may not be listening to this that are getting pissed at what I'm saying to even suggest that it is. It's just something I do. It helps me get some buy-in though. Well, well, so, okay. Just bring it up in Canada. They'll probably accept it. Well, so, <laughs> so again, so again, if you think about like, I mean, you would never, you would never, well, I mean, they used to at least, they used to like, if you were, say you were homosexual. Okay. So you like dudes or something. And, and, and I mean, they, and they probably, and they do still do this. They try to convince guys that they're not attracted to guys, right? Oh, uh, the pray away the gay? Well, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I'm, I'm just saying, all you're trying to do, all you're trying to do is acknowledge that, okay, this, this is their, this is their attraction. And again, if it's, if it's not exclusive, I mean, we have to, again, just acknowledge that it exists, right? That's part of the, that's part of this process. Sure. I mean, the whole thing about being honest, one of the things we say in here is that, being truthful and engaging in sexually abusive behaviors, those are mutually exclusive to one another, okay? So one can exist as long as the other is present. So either you are truthful and upfront about what's going on with you, or you're headed back down a path that landed you into treatment to begin with, right? It's kind of one or the other, isn't it? Right. You, you, well, yeah. you, you have to. You have to yeah. talk about these things. But again, I think that convincing a client, because there's other things that they think about this too, is because... They know you're involved with their POs. They know that, you know, like you're going to be talking to their POs and they know you come as a treatment team. So for you guys, like on an individual level, how do you, how do you, what are, I mean, I don't know if there's any specific little tactics. I mean, we can talk about it kind of in general, but I mean, specific tactics that you use to try to let this client, um, I don't know, kind of test the waters a little bit. As far as opening up about stuff? Right. So one thing, this is going to end up biting me one day. All right. So one thing I say commonly is, look, there's nothing you're going to tell me that I haven't heard before. So there's one thing on this sexual inventory list that I have yet to hear, and that's necrophilia. Say like everything else, I've had a client in here that's done it. So, yeah. Take your best shot, and I, I kind of make a joke out of it, and like I almost like challenge them a little bit. I turn it, I, I don't know, I, I, I try to kind of turn the humor on a bit. I guess the day that a dude that maybe does have a problem with necrophilia comes through my office, I'll have to eat my words and backpedal a little bit, and uh, er. But for now, that's kind of like a go-to line. It's like I've heard everything. Try me, you know, and nothing's gonna say is gonna shock me. I'm not gonna judge you, you know, and. Like just kind of saying that right out in the open, uh, and especially if I'm cracking a little bit of a joke, uh, that that seems to help a little bit as well. I use humor a lot, and I mean I'm I'm I guess I'm careful with it because I'm certainly not trying to make light out of the, you know their offense, but when it comes to some of the things that you know again we mostly deal with men, a lot of a lot of men have a hard time admitting, you know, that they maybe did something with another man or, you know, maybe they, maybe they have a hard time admitting that they still think about their victim when they masturbate. And that's the thing that would draw clinical attention. But I think just letting them know that I've heard it all and that I'm an open book and I'm there for them just uh, sets them at ease a bit because I, I know they're wondering what I think about them. They tell me that. They're like, oh, yeah, I thought if I told you that, you would think I was this. Mm-hmm. You know? So, I so mean, the, humor, the humor is a rapport-building mechanism. It's a rapport-building mechanism. And, and it's right. designed to lighten the mood on an otherwise pretty gloomy topic that might open it up for a client to explore a little bit more. There you go. That's okay. right. Exactly. What about you, Justin? So I think it's a rapport, obviously, is kind of a broad term. So obviously good rapport is a big part of that. But I think also with rapport, it's for me, like I feel like what I do really well with is self-disclosing. 
and obviously not telling them too much because they're not there to listen to my problems for one. But but I just kind of saying like a standard start telling thing them your of, sexual fantasies. Yeah, about. I start telling them about like all the horrible things I've done. No, uh, but I, I'll I'll share sometimes. Just like he'll say something like uh, I'll have a client talk about like having a fight with his girlfriend. And I'll speak. Oh yeah, dude, me, me and my wife fight about that stuff sometimes too. It's frustrating, huh? Like, and I'll kind of point out like usually where I try to go with it is I'll try to point out some of like my thinking errors in those situations. Like, oh, yeah, yeah I, I mouthed off and I, I said all this rude stuff and I knew I needed to take a break. And then two days later, I felt dumb about it and I had to go back. And I think it just kind of shows them like, oh, it's good deals with stuff too. Like just I'm not on some pedestal because I'm a therapist. So I think there's a amount of just kind of saying like some of this core emotional stuff, we all deal with that. I think there's that part. Or if I have someone that's like really struggling with coming out with something, I'll, I'll be kind of blunt to a point. I'll just say like, you coming in and talking about this stuff is not for me. That's not for my benefit. This is only going to help you. So the only thing I, I, way I can really help you is if you start to show me some of the stuff or some of the stuff. Ha- I'm not expecting huh. you to spill everything right now, but if you start to show me some of it, you'll be able to see, like, I'm not going to judge you. I'm not going to have a poor reaction. We're just going to talk about it. Like, try it. Think of something you can tell me, whether it's related to your offense or whatever. Bring it in one week. Let's just talk about it because that's how we're going to build trust. Is you just got to find out what you can start telling me. And see, and see it's going to go well, and then kind of see for yourself, okay, I can probably tell more, but that's for your benefit, not mine. I don't think mm-hmm. I've considered explaining it that way. That's good. It I mean, Well, I mean, because it's 100% true, but from a client's perspective, they're probably thinking that you're asking all these – I mean, so we do assessments. We are information gathering, but I think that they think that's a whole thing. Like They come and they report these things to you, and then in your – in your clinical mind, you're formulating all these like diagnoses and problems and like, you know, plugging things into some algorithm on your computer, which we do. But, <laughs> but, but, re, but ultimately, yeah, like the, the, a lot of the value in the therapy that we do is them being able to get this stuff out. And so, well, yeah. I'll, and I'll, I'll I think, and I think, one. especially when I have a newer client that I know is going to be working towards taking, you know, disclosing everything about their sexual past and an assignment that leads to a polygraph to confirm whether they're being honest or not. Like, I don't know how much more vulnerable you can get in treatment. And, it's, yeah. and, and a, on some levels, kind of forced, which is even harder. So I think I, I, I really try to catch small things that they can tell me about. And I know there's a suspicion of like, well, he's going to tell my PO, and then my PO is going to call me. So sometimes I kind of like when they can disclose something, you know, within reason, and then the next session, like, hey, right. how are you doing? Dude. Well, the and they find out like I didn't rat on them or I didn't tell on them. So they but can, like, even your even your language that you just use, I don't know if it, if it's just built into your into your the way you talk about this thing, but linguistically we can manipulate them into thinking this way. Because think about this. So if I if I categorize. The, I mean, the, so what's another name for the polygraph? The lie detector. The lie, a lie detector. detector. Well, we're not trying to detect lies. I mean, even our polygrapher, Ed Cook, he'll tell you, I, I do everything I can to help these guys pass, right? I mean, so the, the, the polygraph is should, at that point, be a confirmation of the truth. And I try to encourage therapists, and this is, so as a therapist, think about this. The polygraph is... Um, the polygraph is to sex offender treatment is, as the UA is, is to substance abuse treatment. This is a confirmation that I'm doing what I should be doing. The problem with the polygraph is, is it's far more expensive than a UA. Mm-hmm. I mean, a UA is, a, it, it, I mean, it's, it's just objective, and, it, and it's just a confirmation to the client um, and those around the client that, yeah, I'm not using, and so can we con- continue into this other stuff, right? Um, but, it, I mean, it's also a good indicator of, of usage over time, too. I mean, again, it's not to say that UA is going to stop a client from using. They, of course, relapse. But, again, I mean, how fascinating is it for a client to see that if in the last three years I've been using drugs regularly and then I went six months without using and then I had one and then went another three months? That's that's incredible. That's mm-hmm. a huge turn for of sure. events that if I get to see that visually, that's really important for somebody to see. So there are some benefits to that. But even saying that the the polygraph is a confirmation that you're telling me the truth and saying that I'm, I I will not send you into a polygraph unless I feel confident in you that you're... And I tell clients this all the time, and we even say this on our, on our polygraph assignments. We say, okay, if you are not prepared to go into a polygraph, in other words, if you are keeping something a secret, right... Um, just tell us that you're not ready for the polygraph. Use those exact words. I'm not ready for the polygraph. And ask yourself, what have you told me? You've told me that I'm not ready for the polygraph. Dude, I don't know if you've got 
fucking athlete's foot or like you're just or, or or you're lying i don't know what it is you've just told me that you're not ready for the polygraph and leave it at that and if trust needs to continue to be established great do that and i like what you said like i i will i just acknowledge i just tell a client and i use a lot of i use humor and i do a lot of self-deprecating too because as therapists i think sometimes if you don't that pedestal that mm, is no. present until if i can kind of join with the clients and again i there's a clear distinction that I'm the professional and you're the client, but it, the more I can um, humanize myself, the better it is for them. Yeah. And I just acknowledge, like, dude, if I was sitting in you, I, I wouldn't trust me. Look at me. I mean, there's no way I would trust me. I would not trust me one bit. So understand that it's my job to earn your trust, not for you to be fully honest with me. Okay, so I'm going to earn your trust so you can be honest, and I and so then we kind of get into a conversation of what that looks like, and I say, well, what what makes you trust a person? And most people don't even know how to answer that question. Mm-hmm. What makes you trust a person? And I say, well, test the waters, throw things out, even if you, I mean, make stuff up and see how I react to those things, and then understand that. This is where groups are particularly effective because if I have a diversity of clients and this guy's new and I've got a client and we have plenty of clients that say crazy stuff in groups and I don't overreact and maybe I laugh and I I throw a reflection at them and then reframe it and a client sees that they're like, oh, wow, this guy is not going to burn me and that's where some of that can come in. So I think it's kind of a mixture of all those things. But even the language that I use, if you tell a client like, "Oh yeah, we're we're going to send you the lie detector test." Or if, or if <laughs> or if I think he's lying, so let's do a polygraph. No, if you think he's lying, make a judgment call and tell him you think yeah. he's being dishonest. Yeah. That in and of itself is going to build trust. If you tell a client you think he's being dishonest because now you're being honest. So mm. honesty begets honesty. I can't be lying behind a, a client's back either. Even when I send messages to my POs, I'll read out loud yep, same. Right to the client what I'm sending them so they understand everything is super transparent. That keeps me accountable too. Like There, there might be times where I was kind of like, well, I don't want the client to think this about me, so when I'm te- uh, maybe I'll just keep this... You know, I'll say this this piece of the PO, but I, I don't even do that anymore. You know, I'll if if I'm going to be reporting to a probation officer about a client, I owe it to the client to shoot straight and not not play this weird little game. So I mean that that's actually helped me maybe model honesty. Maybe. Well, I think the only exception to that is like if there's an absconsion risk, right? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, if there's a flight risk, of course, and the PO asks you not to do this, well, now law enforcement is is <laughs> requesting that you do these things. That's a little For bit sure. different. For sure. But again, I've I've had caseworkers too um, that that get upset about some of the information that's talked about a client. And I say, well, I would never say anything publicly in a courtroom about a client that I wouldn't say right to their face ever. Why would I ever do that? That doesn't make any sense. Because the client deserves to know. So the idea that somehow they're going to go off the rails with this information. Again, I can't. It, it, a client told me one time he was working with a therapist, and the therapist was um, a person of size, shall we say, right? And he was uh, he was talking to the client about controlling his urges, and the client's like, "I just couldn't believe what I was hearing. This guy's talking to me about controlling urges while he's, you know, drinking his sixty-four ounce Mountain Dew and shoving Twinkies down his face, and he's like 400 pounds and has diabetes, you know, right after his insulin Have shot. Have some self-control. Right, and, I, and, he, and so so I think part of this, uh, you know, social learning theory would be that we model these behaviors as well, and modeling the behavior that I'm going to be fully honest with you encourages them to be honest as well, and that's that's a big part of the process. So why not just be honest with those things and upfront and open about those things? Clients really like that, and I and, and when they disagree... Let them let them disagree. It's totally okay. We were dealing with a we deal with a client right now. Um, he's uh so he's as of right now he's trying to uh, manipulate his way out of the halfway house. It's so this is it's the you would love this like so Jeff the, the client first of all is um, trying to say that he could be done and so there's other clients who have been completed from the the program here is 12 months right right no matter what Utah Department of Corrections. Sex Offender Task Force have said that. And to be honest, they've got the numbers to back up 
what their parameters are. You know what I mean? They've got really good, uh, really low recidivism rates in terms of sexual reoffenses. And so if ever challenged, I mean, they'd just be scoreboard, you know, take a look. And, and there's nothing to be said about it. Now, on, on the face of it, as a therapist, I might disagree with those at times and say, oh, I don't think this guy needs 12 months, but it doesn't matter. I can disagree with it, but it's not in the client's best interest to let them complete earlier than that, because if I do, it's likely that their completion will get rejected later on. So I make him stay the full 12 months. So we made it clear to this kid, and nonetheless, nonetheless, he continues to push the envelope. Now, this was over a month ago, and I even invited Jeff into our group, and Jeff came in as the clinical director, and I'm like... Hey, Jeff, how long does you know, so-and-so need to do their treatment? He's all, 12 months, no exceptions. That's all there is to it. Yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but. And I'm like, and, and again, he's got a, he says he's got a job waiting for him and all this other stuff. And I was like, look, man, I understand your frustration. And I understand you can disagree with this at all times. But, but I'm telling you, in your best interest, okay, this is the last I want to hear about this. Because in your, I'm just going to give you a piece of advice. And I rarely do this as a therapist. I'm just telling you. Just drop it and deal with it. You're, shift your energy and time into now mm-hmm. focusing on what can I do about maybe holding on to that job. If that job's going to drop me, okay, great. I'm going to start looking for another job, right? And I was like, and I'm, I'm telling you, bro, I have more confidence in you than you have in you in that you're going to be able to resolve this. I, I understand your frustration. Maybe I share your frustration, but we have to deal with it. So shift that away. If you leave this group room and continue down the line that you're going down, I promise it's not going to work out in your favor. So trust me. If you've ever trusted me before, please trust me now. What does a kid do? Gets a new shift leader, immediately tries to manipulate. And now he's going to, I mean, he's probably going to get, and and the whole time, risk is elevating because he's manipulating the program. He's triangulating. He's manipulating, right? All these things are happening, and we're just trying to let him, and and again, I think letting him be honest and freak out and all that other stuff is a good thing, but, you know, I, I we need to be honest with him, too. Uh, and I and I just said, yeah, I, I maybe I disagree with it too, but it is what it is. So we got to move well, there, forward. Well, you did your due diligence a, by being honest, though. Well, there's right. an element of being honest there. In the moment, you could say, "Is that working for right now?" No, probably not, because he's not open to it. Mm-hmm. But if I plant the seed of, okay, twelve months to you is a long time, right? That sucks. It's the minimum. You have to do it. So obviously, the time and the money factor here is an issue for you. The way you're acting now. It's turning it into 13 months, 14 months, 15 months. So, and at some point, maybe not right then, but later, he's just, it's hopefully finally going to kind of hit home of like, he's right. They're right. Yeah, that, mm-hmm. I, I got to get this done or else it's going to go on longer. And I think that's a big part of the honesty piece, too, for me is, is not making it time restrictive, you know, like dependent on a certain time frame. Like, like, for example, if I have a guy that does fail a polygraph and I go into the next session, I've almost like in my head kind of just determine that those are kind of just that first session almost always is a throwaway session like nothing happens very rarely do i have someone comes like yep i lied about this this and this this ready to take it again (laughs) it's usually this game of like okay hypothetically when someone fails maybe they've lied about this what do you think nope told the truth well is there why do you think i yeah it's just this weird game where usually what happens at the end of the session i just say hey listen here's the thing this does happen people fail this thing and it's usually like they're embarrassed about something or there's some shame or they're afraid they're going to get in trouble. I don't even want you to answer right now. Just think on it this week. What else maybe could have been going on? Usually within a little bit, I'll at least get something at that point. But if it's kind of like if I force them to do it, you know, in that moment, it's not really going to help. So kind of like an example I have where you said like group being really effective for this because I agree, especially when somebody else sees somebody in group kind of like telling the truth about something or they admitted like, yeah, I went in and told the truth about this and then I passed my polygraph and I went well. I love that. Yeah, that so those those stand out. So I had a guy, it was his first group and at the end of the group, you, I, I slowly saw him going from like being really bored and really checked out and putting his head down and kind of zoning out and all of a sudden kind of started paying attention to what was going on. And this was a, a moment as a guy getting closer to his polygraph and a level one started disclosing a lot of his past and saying, I can't feel better and I can't get this out unless I'm honest. Right as we're about to wrap up, this guy has not said a word and he just says, so what happens when you fail a polygraph? And I just said, are you just starting or are you about to take one? I'm about to take one next week. And I just said, here's my advice. It sounds like you're hanging on to something and I'm not going to tell you to not take the polygraph but it sounds like you're, you're pretty worried about failing if you're to the point of asking that question in group. I would just encourage you in your next session, you need to talk to a therapist about that before you go in. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not going to tell you not to do it, but if you were my client 
and you made that kind of claim, I'd be a little worried, you know, because we don't want right. you to fail. So I would just encourage you. Good, I'm glad you brought it up, but you need to go make sure you talk to your therapist. So rally support from the troops, basically. Yeah. Because, yeah, and it, and again, even it, and I, and I, man, it's just such a, I mean, there's limitations to that because I, I think as a client, if you're a client listening to this, part of this would, I think you have to be saying on some gut level, like, okay, that sounds great, guys, but you don't know what it's like being sure. in our shoes. Like, and I don't. Yeah, I mean, fair point. <laughs> right. I, to, to be honest, I can't say to a client that, that, yeah, you know what? If I tell a lie, right, I'm going to go to prison, right? Or, or that if I give you this shred of information that you could use that against me to the degree that it could ruin my life. And, and unfortunately, that is the situation that they're in, and they do have to trust us. Mm-hmm. And so even telling a client saying that, um, that uh, you, you can tell me that you're not ready for a polygraph, and and that'll be it. But it, they might. Oh, well, what's he going to think I'm up to then? And yeah. then will they t- use that against me? It's almost. But I like it when things kind of. Um, there was recently in Utah, the Utah Supreme Court made a, a decision about a client who was. Um, so he was in the he was in one of the halfway houses here in Salt Lake, and his therapist. Um, so I read the particulars of the case. Um, this is a big uproar in the therapeutic community. Everybody was really worried because they were questioning the use of the polygraph, with, which I think is instrumental to the type of treatment that we do. Um, and they were saying, "Oh, you know, do we have, you know, do we need this or anything like that?" Because this client took uh, his case to the Utah Supreme Court and won. It was in the client's favor. And so what happened was, is his therapist he disclosed and completed the sexual history, and he completed it just like ours, right? But the shift leader, the probation officer, and the therapist at the time, they were um, basically requiring him to disclose identifying information about the victims. Mm. And the problem with that is, is now I'm giving you information that, that as a therapist, I'm put into a position where I'm legally obligated to report this to law enforcement. And if law enforcement has enough probable cause, now they launch an investigation, and that opens the door for new charges. Now, again, as a community member, that may not sit with you very well. And I acknowledge that that probably doesn't sit with you very well. A client comes in here, and maybe they have five uncharged victims, and we're asking them to, to not disclose the identity of those victims. But again, think about this. Okay, they're not going to, because doing so would be a violation of their Fifth Amendment constitutional rights. We can't. And that's why that guy won that case, was because he said, I'm not going to do this, and he was removed from treatment. Well, the Utah Supreme Court said that's a violation of his constitutional rights. So like it or not, that's where we are. Again, dwelling on what these guys did is not going to help us. What we are saying is, okay, how can we help them integrate and become safer for the community now. And the only way we do that, the polygraph bears out a pattern of sexual behavior that we may need to address. Maybe the sexual offense was an isolated incident. Maybe it was the tip of the iceberg. In any event, the sexual polygraph helps us for treatment planning purposes to bear that out. And I just, for a client, I tell them about that case. Why not? I mean, why not tell them about that case? It gives them trust. It gives them trust that you don't have another angle. In fact, I think it's, I think we mention on our, we mention on our, on our uh, assignment, we list your Fifth Amendment right that you can, you know, and that we're not going to violate it. And it's important for clients to see that. So all the smoke and mirrors is not good for therapists either. I mean, the polygraph is a treatment instrument for treatment planning. It has nothing to do with trying to catch you in a lie and use that to send you. I mean, when was the last time that a client got sent back to prison based on a sexual history polygraph alone? I can't I've never had one. Yeah, right. I, I can't think. Because, yeah. So again, those type of tactics, I think, on their face is really valuable for a client to hear. And if you have clients who have experienced that, rallying them to help this educate this client is really important yeah and maybe just to reiterate what you were saying about the community you know maybe not really liking the idea that we're not requiring them to report their uncharged victims you know from from your point of view if you're listening to this as a community member you're you you know you probably want justice for the people that were victimized and i 100 percent get that since since our job as therapists is to treat these dudes and you know help them create a plan to not do this again as a therapist all uh, identifying information doesn't solve that puzzle but at least having like 
an idea of the age and gender and maybe the grooming tactics or whatever it was that they used to set up an uncharged victims gives us, like Mace was saying, a pattern of behavior that then helps us help the client make the changes. So the the identifying information doesn't really do much for us clinically in terms of helping them manage either. risk. And it's not our job. Yeah. Right. It's not our job. That's that's law enforcement, which if that's the route they want to go on their own and pursue it, by all means. Our job as therapists in helping these guys is to get them to recognize their own patterns, but you know certainly we need to be aware of the patterns as well, knowing that it was you know uh, Jenny Smith, fifteen years old, Clearfield, or whatever. It, you know that's that that doesn't really help or hurt. If anything, it does hurt, but it doesn't doesn't really help us help these guys plan to not reoffend. So if you guys are able to kind of convince a client that um, telling the truth is and being honest is um is in their best interest i mean the one thing is 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 acknowledging well what does that even mean right i mean it, for the most part when i ask a client how's your week been i mean i don't i don't want to know if you stubbed <laughs> your toe that morning like I, I there there's actually very specific information that i would like to know and clients kind of adapt to that, right? Yeah. But so, so one of the things we try to do in this in this concept is teach clients that help them understand the relationship between honesty and living a healthy lifestyle. So, how do you guys typically bridge that gap between honesty and living a healthy? What do you mean? As far well, as so what, like what, what I gap? do is this: is I try to say this. I say, well, think about this, okay? Imagine, and I I just heard you guys have seen Liar Liar with Jim Carrey, right? Yeah. Okay, so I use this analogy, and I say, well, so if you've seen that movie, a lot of people can relate to it, and it's kind of funny. But I say, so think about that as a function. If, for whatever reason, somebody was able to cast a spell on you, and you had to tell the truth, think about how much more in control of your behaviors you would be. (laughs) I mean, most of the reason why we do shit that's against the rules is because we know we're not going to tell somebody about it, right? Yeah. If you ultimately had to be honest about what you were going to do, and if there was some compelling force like that you couldn't control, that you knew you were going to have to tell your PO about, or you knew you were going to have to tell your therapist about, or move beyond that, you knew you were going to have to tell your boss about, or your wife, or your husband, or anything like that, think about how people would control their behaviors at that point. Because not because, not because, you know, they said, well, I can, that, it's right or wrong simply because I was going to be, I have to be honest about this and I don't I know how it's going to affect the other person. So I say, that's a simple concept. It's not easy by any, by any stretch, but a simple dedication to being fully honest about my behaviors and accountable to my behaviors is a huge control mechanism and a huge behavioral control. It'll keep my behaviors in check because I don't want to be honest about things that I did. So I'd rather just not do them and then I can be honest about that. Yeah. That's good. Liar, liar. As an exa- Do you tell them the liar, liar as an example? Oh, yeah. Well, and of course, you kind of like joke about it and you say, you know, so Jim Carrey, you know, give it the basic premise behind this yeah. and say this is what happened. And, and he made a joke about it. But, but again, I just say, so imagine how functional that would be for people if you were able to do that. Our ability to do certain th- and we And I think to some degree, we all tell lies, right? We have to. There's just no getting around that. I mean, most of those lies are harmless. And in our own minds... We try to, you know, categorize it as this, this, it's, it's better off this way, right? That's kind of how we do this. And, and again, for the most part, it doesn't result in harm. And so who cares? You know, those are the type of things. But when I'm, I'm legitimately doing things that I don't want another person to talk about uh, or hear about. And, and again, th- that would put a behavioral control on me. If I had to tell the truth about that, uh, people would change up their behaviors big time. Most of the things I lie about now, you know, if you're saying if they're little, okay, well, it probably wouldn't affect your life profoundly if you had to tell the truth about those things. But right. other things, yeah, it would be a yeah. big deal. It would control those things. No, that's a good way to look at it. I like that. Well. So, so from your guys' perspective, I mean, I use the liar liar approach, but how do you guys kind of help them understand that relationship between honesty and living a healthy lifestyle? I guess. A lot of times I'll, I'll talk to the, well, well, I'm not sure I even understand your question. You know, so like between honesty, when you're saying bridging the gap between honesty and you're talking about kind of like the importance of being honest as it plays in like 
I can't necessarily have a healthy lifestyle and just be lying about everything and well, holding a lot of secrets. Like, uh, if part of being if part of a healthy lifestyle is having like solid self esteem, right? Yeah. yeah. Well, how does honesty relate to self esteem? Sure. I guess I haven't broached that topic th- that way with with clients. But yeah, because there, there'd be like a lot of shame, a lot of chipping away at my self worth if I'm just constantly not holding my word or not keeping up with my responsibilities or my obligations that's going to continually beat me down. Like I'm, I'm probably not going to tell one specific lie and then just feel horrible about myself. I mean, that can happen, but if it's like if I have a pattern of, eh, I kind of lie here and I kind of lie here and I cheat here and I don't do this and I don't follow through on that, overall pretty much sets the tone of, yeah, I'm not someone that's worth even telling the truth or even worth doing uh, healthy things like living okay. a healthy life in a sense. And As far as bridging the gap between those, yeah, it's kind of, I, I try to like on really small situations like if someone uh, called in sick to work yesterday and I, I, I'm going to lose some money. So it's kind of like, well, think about just kind of the, the tone that starts to set for you as a person. So it's kind of like, do sometimes people call in to, to work sick? Okay, yeah, sometimes that happens. But there is a little bit of a guilt that comes along with that or a little bit of like I feel bad. But then you notice, well, now my paycheck's not as full, so I'm probably going to have to miss a session for group. Well, now that I'm, I'm going to have to miss a session for treatment, I mean, so – no, now I kind of feel bad about that. Now my PO might find out, might get mad at me. So it's kind of like this string of events that came from just wanting to be dishonest in one area. It kind of starts to spill. I kind of look at it as like the ripple effect. Like it's it does spill over, mm-hmm. kind of like in a, in a quote unquote karma sense. Well, like, think about this. Your your, I would say your self esteem or or your ability to be honest is contingent on your self esteem. Mm-hmm. People who are dishonest don't have. I mean, don't have very high levels of self esteem because. Mm-hmm. Again, they don't want to be honest about themselves. But this is the thing. People, this is why, you know, there's even a concept of, can you keep a secret? Why do we even ask that question? <laughs> well, the reason why is because they're so damn hard to keep. Because this is information that I, you know, I, I, it's, it's fun to tell secrets, right? It's fun to share this with another person. <laughs> I got a little shred of information that I want to tell you. And that makes this relationship special, Right. I have this special relationship with this person. That's not enough. I want to make this other... So secrets, though, take a lot of time and energy and dedication to maintain. So if I'm being open and honest, part of that is I'm confident in myself that what's going on in my life is not the end of the world, but that requires me to do things that aren't the end of the world, too. Okay. So I think if clients are lying, that's a reflection of their self-esteem. If they're continually being dishonest, and I would say more so than anything... The most dangerous client in the world is a client who doesn't care about himself. A client who who has very low levels of self esteem. I mean, and again, think about that. If they don't care about themselves, why would they give a crap about somebody else? You know, they don't care about themselves for that matter. You think they're just gonna so? Oh yeah, well, I'm gonna take care of you first and me second. No, they don't get care about you anyway, right? Or mm-hmm. themselves. So why would they care about you? So I think that. If a client's being continually dishonest, it is a reflection of their self-esteem, and targeting self-esteem is going to help them be more honest at that point, too. Yeah. That's kind of the connection to the to the healthy living. It's kind of like the eternal questions that clients... I mean, I don't know how you guys answer this, but when a client asks you, so I met this girl, when when do I tell her You know about my sexual offense status? Hard to right? answer that one. I, well, I don't think there is an answer, right? I mean, some clients are in the ballpark of... Of well, I'm I'll tell her right away, and if she doesn't like it, then see her see you later. I'm like, well, okay, but you know, so the only people that I so essentially what you're telling me is the only people that you're going to associate with are people who are going to accept accept you no matter what. Yep, they have open minds. I'm like, well, isn't that kind of dangerous? And they're like, well, what do you mean? I was like, well, if I mean, if everything is acceptable, then nothing means anything. I mean, there's no value judgment on your behaviors. You should like it when people make value judgments on your behaviors. That's, I mean, mm-hmm. you not having value judgments on your own behaviors is kind of what got you into the into this problem in the first place. You want that, right? Kind of that tolerance is the virtue of a man with no convictions. Well, right. Thing. And there's always going to be a camp of people that no matter how good of a dude you are and all the changes that you've made, they're going to cast you out because of your sexual offense, right? And so you can't rely on those people. So I think those people in the middle is who you want to target. But and, and I always say I don't I don't know man I think it all kind of depends it's all social skills being able to read people mm-hmm. and getting to a point I mean there's breaking points where you kind of say I mean the girl you know if you if I if I you know I I know one therapist framed it one time and he I was just sitting in a group and they said well 
if if you had if you had a uh, AIDS or if you were dating a girl and she had AIDS, wouldn't you want her to tell her on the fir- tell you on the first date? And I'm like, well, it's that's kind it's of not little, the same thing. Yeah, being a sex offender is not an I'm not yeah, gonna catch uncurable your disease. <laughs> yeah. I have to register now too. Right, but I but I also sell to clients. I'm like, yeah, I mean, you know, if you're dating a girl, it, it's probably not the best time to be telling her you're a sex offender as she's pulling her underwear up. You know, like it's probably right. <laughs> probably not the best time to be doing that. So I think. And and again, this 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 is a big pump the brakes type moment for them and say, slow that down, start to develop that relationship to the point where you're confident in telling them, but you're also confident in the rejection that you're going to receive from that, that you're going to be okay if they do reject you, and that's okay, and yeah. that's where the honesty built. That's where I can have a healthy lifestyle. That's where I yeah, bridge and, that and gap. that's and usually what I have with this like a kind of analogy I tell guys as far as like for one in a lot of senses you're probably relearning a bit how to naturally or in a healthy way, let a relationship progress. I was like, let's just say, for example, okay, yeah, I don't personally have a sex offense or a criminal record that I would have to worry about disclosing to someone. But if I went into a first date with like, hey, well, I just want to let you know before we even order, uh, I'm really dirty. Like, I don't like to clean the toilet seat off. Sometimes I'm really bad with money. Um, to just, if you're not cool with that, we just need to call it quits right here. Most people that have good boundaries are going to be like, what the hell? And they're yeah. going to be gone, you know, not what, not not because of that, but because I told them that right out of the gate. That's a, and that's probably the person that you'd want in your life, person yeah. that has those boundaries. Well, yeah. yeah, and you don't even do that. That's why I don't like the idea of doing introduction sessions when we do therapy. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like, hi, my name's Mace. Let me tell you the worst thing about me. Like that, in no other social setting is that necessarily yeah. appropriate, right? right? So, two, I mean, honesty, I think, has... It's a social skill. It's not. It's not simply just do it all the time because the other person has to be prepared and primed for that honesty. Remember your client that um, he was so like just indoctrinated with. You have to tell everybody about your offense. He like went over. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He went over to a, like the local mental health agency and he's like. If I don't get substance abuse treatment, I'll be out there raping women, like <laughs> yeah, some yeah. something like that, and you can do something like, like that. Su- yeah, like off the hook accountability, like way, like way too accountable. And this guy was not going to go and rape women if he doesn't get substance abuse treatment. But the the way that he'd been conditioned in therapy was to think that I need to be <laughs> have this like hyper extreme version of honesty. And kind of needs to be over the top so people know I'm serious. You know, and this this is an older gentleman. And, you know, in addition to going to the local counseling agency asking for substance abuse therapy or else I'm raping people, <laughs> he also went to, like, a senior citizen's uh, center and was trying to make friends there and was talking about, you know, I'm a rapist. And just, like, <laughs> like just th- that was his kind of opening line, you know. Yeah. Shortly after saying, hi, my name is such and such. I'm a rapist. And I'm like, what? And, and you know, he, he got he got roundly rejected and, and kind of kicked on out of that place. And he came to me saying, I'm trying to be honest and upfront and truthful in my daily living. And uh, he was actually heartbroken. So I was like, I mean, I'm stifling a laugh a little bit just because of how extreme he was. But at the same time, feeling bad for the dude because, well, man, he lacked those social well, skills it is being si- honest. Yeah, it's silly. It's a silly situation looking at it from, like, a third perspective is kind of realistically what he wants is he doesn't want to be rejected over that. So he wants right. to know right away. I want to feel good right away that you're okay with that instead of going through the vulnerable process of getting to know you and then potentially having you shut me down. But then it's like the self-fulfilling prophecy exactly. of I'm guaranteeing you're going to shut me down because I'm telling you the worst thing ever about me. Well, yeah, but that's so you use the key word there is the vulnerable piece. So mm-hmm. honesty Honesty requires that I show vulnerability. Mm. And when I show vulnerability, the re- the only reason why I would want to do that in a relationship is to strengthen that relationship. Mm. So the the tie-in for a healthy lifestyle is this. If I'm if I'm blatantly honest out of the gate like homeboy was there, right? Then those relationships are prematurely bound to reject him. I mean they're they're those are not relationships that are set up to receive that level of information. Now, over time, as those people develop and grow and, and kind of nurture that relationship, and then they say, well, yeah, I'm going to show you, like any other relationship, I'm going to show you some vulnerability about me, and then you're going to show me vulnerability about you, and then our relationship is stronger at that point and much more meaningful and has more depth. That's right? that honesty is a social skill thing. Right, so. much, yeah. exactly. So it's a much more textured relationship. So my ability to form relationships like that, that is, in terms of long-term success, that's where I can really get my, my money's worth in terms of honesty. So for clients, again, 
initially I try to teach them to be honest because it's in their best interest for me and them in a therapeutic relationship. But then uh, over time they say, well, look how cool this relationship is between you and I. You can take this outside of these walls and do this in any relationship. But understand that's going to take time. People are not going to trust you. You're not going to trust them. Giving them too much information at the beginning, to your credit, is worrisome. I mean, they can reject you. They could use it as a weapon against you. And some of those relationships, even though they're long bound, you know, I mean, with family, like we talked about that, there's risks there too. Those relationships are so deeply seated that we don't want to lose those relationships. Or because of how much I care about you, I'm going to overlook how important that information is that you just told me too. So excuse it away. Right. So honesty is very much a social skill and how I use it and when to use it and to what degree I use it is, is very important to teach these clients. And so um, I think that's a big takeaway from getting into this concept when you talk to a client about that. They need to understand that when they leave here. There's well, no I, think, I think honesty too, even outside of just <clears throat> like things I feel like I'm embarrassed about or need to hide or things like that, I would say it's kind of like in the, in the frame of getting to know someone. Obviously, there's, there's tact there initially and usually in building a relationship. It's more about I want to maybe highlight some of the things that are good about me or like reasons why you might want to be my friend or reasons why you might want to eventually date me. I want to highlight that right out of the gate, right? So I think it spills over into a therapeutic relationship too because I'm going to kind of want to be honest with my client initially. I'm like, why is it going to be helpful to be honest with me? Like, what is it about me that can help you be honest? And then for a client too is is not even just saying like, oh, hey, first session, nice to meet you. Here's what I did. Here's all this, here's all this. But it's also like being honest in the sense of, Hey, I'm your new client. Like, I'm really terrified to go back because I miss my family and I'm afraid they're going to reject me. And like, I want to find a good job and I'm afraid I won't. And I deal with anxiety and it's embarrassing. And I don't know how to handle that stuff. So it's like honest in a, in a vulnerable sense too, not just about yeah, yeah. rules I'm breaking or bad stuff that I'm done. But it's also like honest about me. It's like, what are like good qualities that I have mm-hmm. that maybe I don't want to talk about or I haven't talked about before? Mm-hmm. Yeah, but when you bridge that gap for a client. And so for a client, a kind of a takeaway message on this is that you're, is that you're, we're over an hour on this one. Yeah. For this one right Mace here. Mace was asking me about the time. Yeah. We're, we're getting into a good conversation here. This for honesty. Yeah. yeah. We're at like an hour and five minutes. No way. Yeah. What? It's been good. It's a good oh one. Oh my God. Okay. Yeah. Never mind. I like it. <laughs> Yeah. Anyway, we, well, we'll wrap up. We here. finish on whatever point you're making. And well, this is take so this your is, point, yeah, right. So this is what I'm trying to say here: is that first and foremost, you're not going to be able to uh, work on your sexually abusive behaviors unless you're honest and forthcoming about those things. Secondly, yeah, telling the truth is difficult, right? And so, and acknowledge that ahead of time. Be willing to admit that to your therapist. But secondly, uh, and well, lastly, I should say. Understand that, okay, if I make a commitment, a strong commitment to honesty, it's likely going to control my behaviors in the future. And secondly, uh, part of that is my, my, my relationships, my primary relationships are going to be more meaningful and much more textured and nuanced if I am honest in those relationships and, sh- and show some vulnerability. But it shouldn't be with everybody. And when I don't tell you things, it's not about keeping secrets. It's because you haven't earned to learn that about me yet. And not until you have have developed a relationship with me, I'm not going to tell you those things. Which is a healthy boundary. Right. It's not about keeping secrets. It's about maintaining boundaries with individuals and being vulnerable with the people that you need to be. And that will strengthen relationships, lead a healthy lifestyle. So that about does it for this one. All right. All right, everyone. That does it for that episode next week or next episode, whatever. I don't know if you're going to listen to it now or in a week. I don't know. I don't know why I said that, but we're going to be talking about recovery and then also a really weird debate on the keto diet and how much how much Mace loves it and why he's benefited so much from the keto diet. But yeah, check it out in the next episode. See you later.